morning, everyone. This is my first time I've ever preached in a movie theater. This is so, so awesome. And, I mean, you've got the, the cool, um, uh, you know, reclining chairs. Uh, is that me or is that? Um, the cool reclining chairs, all that sort of stuff. So don't fall asleep. Uh, and, and no popcorn. I don't see any popcorn or anything like that. But I am so glad uh, to be with you all here today. Um, I got to leave the, the, the cold weather, still kind of cold weather, in Chicago. That's where we live. And uh, growing up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, there's only one rule. Don't ever live in Chicago. Uh, because, you know, there's this football rivalry thing that goes on. And so I said, God, I'll go wherever you want me to go, just as long as it's not Chicago. Just, just where we live. Can I fix that at all, or is that... It's the what? check. Ah, there we go. So we live in Chicago. Been there for five years now, a little over five years. Um, as Pastor Norbert said, we've got uh, two adult children. They're both married. Uh, they're walking with the Lord, which we're so grateful for, right? We never take that for granted. And uh, the most important thing is we've got two grandsons. And I mean, I, I'd have skipped kids if I'd have known how great grandkids were. And so we have a three-year-old grandson named Calvin and a four-month-old grandson named Franklin, and they are uh, the joy of our hearts for sure. And uh, so I was a pastor for 25 years, actually in three different churches, and uh, always in second chair roles, which, which meant um, I, I was always in charge of helping the pastor look good. That was my, that was my job in all sorts of different roles. And uh, in 2017, when I started this job with uh, Converge Mid America in church strengthening, I looked at the job description. I said, oh, my goodness, this is what I've been doing for 25 years of ministry. I, and now I get to help pastors look good continually. And, uh, and I get to travel all over to do that. And, and about a year and a half ago, Converge Mid America, which was seven churches uh, in really the Midwest, um, became uh, 11 states. Did I say uh, seven churches? I meant seven states. It became 11 states and the Caribbean when we uh, joined with uh, the Southeast region. And uh, it has been so great uh, to get to know our churches down here and any opportunity I get to, to be able to do that. And, I mean, come on, Fort Lauderdale at the end of April? How, how it, can't, it can't get any better than that. And so my wife uh, came with me on, on this visit, and, and uh, so we, again, are thrilled. There's two things that drive everything that I do. One is I, I say we want to flip the script. And what I mean by that is 85% of churches in America are either plateaued or declining. And really, plateaued for most of those churches means declining. And so I get up every morning and I, and I say, what if? What, what if we could flip the script? And 85% of the churches in Convergent in America, Southeast and Caribbean were strong, healthy gospel-centric and reproducing places. And so that just drives what I do every day. 
And the second thing is no one leads alone. And, uh, you know, if you're, if you're going to be a part of Converge, welcome to the autonomy of the local church. That means we can't tell you what to do. Um, but um, so you can lead alone if you want as a pastor, but it's going to be in spite of us. Uh, and so we want to come alongside our pastors and leaders and, and, and help them uh, be strong and healthy as they lead churches. Because here's the reality. If you don't have a healthy pastor, you don't have a healthy church. That's a, that's a guarantee. And so we want to come around and encourage and coach and love um, our pastors. And so um, it's just a privilege uh, to be here with you. Um, I grew up in this movement called Converge. As a matter of fact, uh, I was born into this movement. My grandparents were part of a church planning core team before church planning was cool. Uh, and it used we used to be called the Baptist General Conference. Some of you might remember that lingo back in the day. And, um, and, and so I was blessed to grow up in a church that loved Jesus and wanted people to know him. My mom was one of the organists of the church. They used to have this thing called an organ in a church, and uh, she played that. And, and on the Sundays that she would play the organ, um, she would practice on a Saturday because obviously we didn't have an organ in our house, right? And so she would go to the, to the church to practice. And my sister and I, she's a year younger than me, we would uh, go with her while she practiced. And uh, one of the things we did when we went with her to do that is we would play church. Um, I, I would get up, or one of us would get up and, and, and conduct the songs. Remember, uh, we, we used to do that. If someone would be up front, and as we'd sing a hymn, we'd conduct, and well, we didn't know what we were doing. I'm sh not sure the people who did that knew what they were doing, but anyway, I digress. And, uh, and then we'd take an offering. I don't know how we did that because neither of us had any money. And then one of us would preach. I mean, we were really good at doing church because we had seen it done many, many, many Sundays. Well, by the time I got to college, I was pretty sure that I had this church thing all figured out. But it was in college that God just rattled my cage. I mean, and he, just, he just blew away everything that I thought about what church was all about. And it was here that God used that rattling uh, to call me to vocational ministry as a pastor. The first thing that rattled me was my discovery that not everyone who attended Bethel University, which is where uh, that's our converged school in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, I, I realized that not everybody at that school was a Baptist. I mean, it blew me away. I, I, although I knew sort of, sort of mentally that you did not need to be a Baptist to be a Christian, I hadn't really been around many Christians of other denominations. And all of a sudden, there were Presbyterians and Methodists and Charismatics and even Lutherans who claimed to love and know Jesus. And uh, I was just amazed by that. That just blew me away. The second thing that rattled me was that although I had grown up in an evangelical church, I didn't really know what worship was. This discovery that I had came in two different ways. Number one, I was a music major, and I was taking a class at Bethel called Music and Worship. And my mind and heart were opened as though I was opening up a new gift as, uh, that I was unwrapping uh, on this whole concept of worship. And at the same time, I was attending a church in Minneapolis that was doing the very things that I was learning about in that class. 
And I knew then that I wanted to be a part of worship for the rest of my life. That, that was it. That was the deal. And, and God used those two experiences as a, as a part of his calling of me to vocational ministry. And for 15 years specifically, I was a worship pastor. And I learned and experienced through all of this that my act of worship before all of this had been more about doing the things the way I had always done them. Again, just like my sister and I, when we would go to church, I was good at doing what we were supposed to be doing. But I, I wasn't understanding this idea of coming into the presence of God. And, and one Christian writer has said that to come into the presence of God and kneel before him for an hour demands all the strength that we possess. We have to be violent to hold that ground, he says. I now believe that with, uh, with all my heart that worship is the most important thing that we are about as Christians. You know, we share the love of Jesus with others th uh, through evangelism because we want others to, to know the hope we have in the God that we worship. We want people to, to grow in their relationship with God through discipleship because we want them to know and love more and more the God that we worship. We care for one another through fellowship. Why? Because our love for one another is an outflow of our love for God and his presence. Pastor and author A.W. Tozer said it this way. You see it on the screen. We are brought to God and to faith and to salvation that we might worship and adore him. Yes, worship of loving God is man's whole reason for existence. That's why we're born and that's why we're born again from above. That's why we were created and that's why we've been recreated. That's why there's a genesis at the beginning and that is why there is a regenesis called regeneration. And that's also why there's a church. The Christian church exists to worship God first of all. Everything else must come second or third or fourth or fifth. Brothers and sisters, we were created to worship. That, that's it. We were recreated to worship. And if worship is the most important thing we're about, it would stand to reason that Satan will do anything in his power to keep us from it. And one of the ways he does that is by getting us to concentrate more on the form of our worship, that is, the things that we do when we gather, rather than the object of our worship, which is God himself. And if we're not careful, we can get really good at doing church, like my sister and I were when we would come with my mom to church on Saturday morning. So what if... This morning, we could rethink a little bit why we gather together and why we do what we do. Do we do it because we've always done it that way? Or do we come together doing whatever it takes to glorify and honor God and to love him with all of our heart and our soul and our mind? And so let's begin, if we could, by defining what worship is. And if we define what worship is, we have to kind of define what worship is isn't. So let me be clear about a couple of things. Worship is not a sermon. When I grew up, that's actually what we thought worship was. We actually used the phrase, we do the preliminaries, which is everything but the sermon, so we could get to what the real worship was, which was the sermon. Worship is not a sermon. Conversely, newsflash, worship is not music. 
we, we've kind of flipped, flipped the pendulum a little bit now. And, and so when we leave church on Sunday morning, sometimes we'll say, oh, worship was great this morning, wasn't it? And what do we mean? We mean the music was really good. Friends, worship is not music. Worship is not even prayer, the gathering of people in a church building, the display of talents, emotionalism, a programmed, a timed event. As important as some of these things are, worship is not what we do. Worship is about our relationship with God. It is what Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven on the screen. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Worship is about giving praise and glory and worth to the only one who's worthy of it. It is by definition our response to a holy God and God's response to his people. Do you see it? We respond to God for who he is, his his worth, his glory. It is who he is. And God, because of his love for us, well, he doesn't leave us hanging there like every other God. He, He actually responds back to us. He fills us with his presence. He gives us assurance that we are his, and he empowers us by his Holy Spirit to re-enter the world as his ambassadors. Isn't that awesome? When you think about that, that should just blow the synapses of your, of your brains. The creator of all that we can see and all that we cannot see wants and desires to respond to us. Somebody say amen to that. It's amazing. Well, with that definition as a backdrop, then what should our worship look like? And maybe the best way to answer that is go to the book. (laughs) What does the Bible have to say about worship should look like? I'm going to be in a lot of different passages of Scripture in the next few minutes, and, and I'm only going to turn to a few of them. So I encourage you, as I go through these passages of Scripture, write them down, look at them afterwards. Uh, see what God has to say. See if, if what I've been saying really is what God is saying in, the, in those Scriptures. But the first thing we want to do as we think about what our worship should look like is this. Worship must involve our whole self. Worship has to involve everything that we're about. We find this in John chapter 4, verses 19 to 24. Uh, And so that's one that you can write down. John chapter 4, verses 19 to 24. Let me just give you a little setting of what's happening in this particular passage of Scripture. Jesus goes to a well to get some water. And these wells that people uh, would go and get water to, they weren't just a place to go get your water. It was also a place where you would congregate and talk to other people. It was, it was a place of conversation. And so Jesus gets to this well, and it's there that he meets this woman. Now, here's one thing that you could guarantee, and that was no Jew in good standing would ever be caught dead talking to a woman that was not his wife. That was just something you didn't do. Women were considered second-class citizens in this culture, and there was no reason to ever have a conversation with a woman. But it gets even worse. 
This wasn't just a woman. This was a Samaritan woman. And Samaritans were half-breed Jews, so to speak. And simply put, there was no love lost between Jews and Samaritans. They hated each other. They wouldn't even step into each other's house. So here's Jesus, a full-blooded male Jew, doing an unthinkable thing in talking to a Samaritan woman. But it gets worse than that. Not only was this a woman, a Samaritan woman, this was a Samaritan woman with questionable morals. So it's it's in this setting that she decides, get this, to challenge this rabbi Jesus to a philosophical debate. (laughs) In her mind, since Jesus is such a brilliant teacher, maybe he could help her figure out this philosophical controversy. Could he tell her where the right place to worship was? You know, there was this question. Was was the right place to worship where the Samaritans worshipped on on a particular mountain? Or was it in Jerusalem where the Jews felt that worship should take place? I mean, where is, Jesus, the right place to worship? I think it's kind of a a familiar-sounding question, even for us today. Jesus, should, should we worship singing hymns from a hymnal or should we sing praise music from a screen? Should we only use the piano or an organ for instrumentation or should we use a praise band? Should the sermon be short or long? Should it be targeted to the believer in Jesus or should it be for those who don't yet know Jesus? And oh, by the way, what translation of the Bible is the right one for us to use? You know, if we're honest, we can find ourselves asking the same sort of questions that the Samaritan asked over 2,000 years ago. But here's the cool thing. This is what Jesus always did. He, He never got himself caught in the philosophical arguments that were coming at him. In verse 23 and 24, he switches the conversation on her. And it's the real crux of the issue for him, and you'll see it here on the screen. He says, woman, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. He says, it's not about this mountain. It's not about that mountain. It's not about translation. It's, it's not about length of sermon. It's, it's not about any of that. It's about worshiping me in spirit and truth. Well, what is spirit and truth? Well, spirit is is engaging ourselves as people. God has made us as real people, not as robots. And what he wants us to do is he wants to engage our whole selves in the experience of worship. But, But he also wants us to engage in truth. That is, our worship needs to be built on what this book says. And so we can kind of fall off the rails on two different sides. We, we can be all about spirit and, and no truth. It's just all about feeling, all about the emotion of things, right? I don't know if it's truth or not, but we're all in. That's not real worship. Other people think as long as we're holding true to this scripture, we don't need to really engage in anything emotional or anything about how God has wired us as real people. Well, that's falling off the rails on the other side. 
God wants us to engage our whole selves in the act of worship. And the point in all of this is that worship isn't simply about what we do, but for who we do it. Worship is about responding to a holy God. Worship is about being fully engaged based on the truth of God's word. So, so how do we engage in worship with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind in spirit and in truth? Well, that brings us to the second point. And that is worship, that is spirit and truth worship must praise God for who he is. And Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, it says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, that means this happened at a real point in history, Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two wings they covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Friends, Isaiah saw the Lord. Remember, Moses saw the Lord, but he only saw his backside. Isaiah saw the Lord. He saw him sitting on a throne, and he was high and exalted. And it says that the train of his robe filled the temple. You know what the train is? On a, on a bridal gown, the train is the part that just drags along the ground. Isaiah says the train of God's robe filled the temple with his glory, just the part that dragged along the ground. And then there's these weird angelic creatures, and they're flying around, and they've got two wings covering their face. Why? Because th they're in God's presence. Even the angels needed to cover their faces. With two, they covered their feet. Why? Because it was holy ground they were in. And with two, they were flying, and they're singing and shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy. It's this cacophony of sound. Can you imagine it? Holy. They're speaking of God being set apart, perfect. And it's not just holy. It's holy, holy. And it's not just holy, holy. It's holy, holy, holy. There's a perfection even in the way of saying it that way. The result of this presence of God with the seraphim flying around and this activity of praise that, that, that the whole place shook. And the shaking is spoken of again in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, where it said that after Peter and the other disciples prayed, the very place where they were meeting was shaken. Oh God, would you shake the Cinemark Theater 14 right now? Here's the takeaway in all this. God is imminent. That, that's a theological word that means that God is near to us. He cares about us. He loves us. He's our father and we're his children. And that's all true. But these first four verses of Isaiah chapter 6 remind us to never forget that God is transcendent too. And that's another theological word that means that God is totally other than us. He's not just bigger, he's wholly bigger, W-H-O-L-L-Y. He's completely bigger. 
He's not just greater, he's infinitely greater. He's not just stronger, he's unlimited in his power. He's not just smarter, he's perfect in knowledge, knowing all things, past, present, and future, from before the very foundations of creation. So we got to come to God worshiping him and praising him for his glory and his greatness. And we need to come to him like it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. You'll see it on the screen. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Don't mistake, God is a transcendent God who deserves our praise and awe and reverence. And as we see God for who he is, as we focus on his greatness with this reverence and awe, something happened to, happens to us because something also happened to Isaiah. And that's number three, worship must lead us to plead for God's mercy and forgiveness. So here's here's what Isaiah's response to what he just saw. It wasn't, oh, this is cool. I'm so glad I'm here. He said, and I said, woe is me. I'm lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. One of the seraph flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. When Isaiah says, Woe is me, it's not just saying, Oh, woe is me. That word woe means great sorrow and great distress. I'm in big trouble right now. Why? Because I've seen God. And he found himself to be not just simply lost, but completely and utterly lost. He was ruined. He was undone. He was unraveled because he is seeing God. He he knew he was a sinner. He knew he lived among sinners. We are sinners. We live among sinful people. And he knew that to look on God was to deserve death. You couldn't look on God as a sinful person and live. He knew he was done for. When he says, woe is me, he knew I am a dead man for what I'm just seeing here. But here's what God does. Instead of killing Isaiah, which is what he had every right to do, one of those weird-looking angelic creatures takes these tongs and he goes to the altar and grabs a white-hot burning coal he comes to Isaiah and he takes that white coal and he singes Isaiah's lips with it. He says, your sin is atoned for. It's gone. I've forgiven it. Uh, what do you think the significance is that that white hot coal singed, cauterized the lips? I think it's because most of our sin comes out of our mouth, right? Man, it had to be painful. Confession can be painful, but it's also purifying. It says sin is atoned for. It's paid for. Jesus paid for it. Do we have that sense in our worship? 
when we come before the holy God of the universe that it sends us to our knees in confession before him? And then do we rejoice that even in our failure and weakness because our sin is forgiven and because of God's goodness to us uh, in, in Jesus' substitutionary atonement on the cross, we are no longer <laughs> in that sin? It's gone. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive most of our sins. <coughs> all of our sins. And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Psalm 32, 1 through 5, that's another one to go look at after this morning. It's a wonderful passage. It talks in the middle of that about the fact that David was wasting away in unconfessed sin. You ever been there? Wasting away. I have. You might be there this morning. The psalmist says, Isaiah says, God says, don't waste away in your sin. Confess it to him. And he won't just forgive the ones that he decides he wants to forgive. He will forgive all of them. Not because you deserve it, not because I deserve it, but because he's amazing and good and gracious and sent his son Jesus to be us our substitute in death for what we deserved. Worship involves praising God, responding to him for who he is. Worship then involves God and his love responding to us in a moment of our despair and unworthiness by making us worthy through his forgiveness of our sin. And then one more thing happens. And that's the fourth thing here. Worship leads us to mission. In verse 8, Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, send somebody else, please. No. He said, here I am. Send me. You know, we were reminded earlier that the greatest commandment in the entire Bible is to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But Jesus said there's a second commandment, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8 is that second commandment. God's saying to Isaiah, if you love me, if you've seen me for who I am, if you've seen what I've done for you, then I need you to go and love your neighbor just like you love yourself. So how do we know today as we leave here if we've met God in worship? Well, it has to make a difference in the way that we live our lives. People have to notice. The server at the restaurant should notice. Where have you been? I just, I just was in God's presence with God's people. You should come with me. People notice when Moses would go meet with God. We, we won't go to that here this morning either. Exodus chapter 34, the verses 29 to 35. When Moses would get into God's presence, his very countenance would change. He actually had to put a veil over his face because it was freaking people out. And when we go into our community, we should have that glow of God's presence on us. It should make people want to know what makes us different, right? I would argue that if we're not reflecting God's glory in our here am I, send me, we have not met with the Lord in worship. We have simply just played church. Paul says in Romans 10, verses 14 and 15, How then will they call on him who they have not believed? 
And how are they to believe in him who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless lest they are sent? Brothers and sisters, we are the preachers, all of us. We're the sent out ones. We're the here am I, send me. Is it your work? Is it your neighborhood? Is it your family? Is it Fort Lauderdale? Is it another country? Is it the Philippines? When we leave here this morning, we're going to flood this community with worshiping people who are radiating God's presence, ready to give a reason for our shine on our faces. May that be so in all of us in this auditorium here today. Lastly, Worship is our eternal destiny. Take some time today and read Revelation chapter 4 and 5. It's a picture of what worship is going to be like for all of eternity. Some people think heaven is flying around on a cloud playing a harp. I sure hope not. (laughs) Who'd want to be a part of something like that for all of eternity? That sounds horrible. Others think that heaven is an eternal church service. I don't think so I used to play golf quite a bit and joke that I thought heaven for me would be an eternal golf game where I always hit the ball where I wanted to hit it maybe you have different ideas of what heaven will be like and most of our ideas have nothing to do with what the Bible says the reality is heaven's going to be about worship eternal unending presence with God where we will worship at his throne Is that enough? Is that enough for us? Is being in God's presence forever worshiping at his throne a thought that gives you goosebumps or bores you? Tozer said this, anyone who is bored or turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. Pretty convicting. By the way, notice he didn't say anyone who's bored or turned off by church. (laughs) He didn't say church, he said worship. Brothers and sisters, our worship here on earth is simply practice for what we're going to be doing for all of eternity. So let me close with three quick things. Number one, as you think about your worship of God, are you desperate for God? Are you desperate for him? Psalm 42, 1 and 2 says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Do we truly understand that we are in need of his presence more than we need food, drink, even air to breathe? Or am I instead simply just wanting the benefits of a relationship with him rather than God himself? Number two, this is a challenge for me. I've been a Christian for most of my life. So the question is this, is Jesus still your first love? Or has your life become cluttered with things that have distracted you from God? Has your home, your things, your job, even your relationships, man, we love our grandkids. It's real easy for them to become more important than they should be. It can crowd out our devotion for Jesus. My prayer is that he would mean so much to us that the things of this world would fade away in comparison. And then lastly, is worship the most important thing that you're about? 
and is worship the most important thing that Point of Grace Church is all about? My prayer for us is that we would become more and more passionate about his presence. That we would seek to know him with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength. And that our passion for his presence would make people from all over Fort Lauderdale and beyond want to know what makes you all so different. And because of a worshiping congregation uh, at Point of Grace Church in Fort Lauderdale, we will never be the same again. A.W. Tozer said this, and with this I'll close. He says, I cannot speak for you but I want to be among those who worship. I don't want to be a part of some great church machine where the pastor turns the crank and the machine runs. You know, the pastor loves everybody and everybody loves him. He has to do it. He's paid to do it. I wish that we might get back to worship again. Then when people come into the church, they will instantly sense that they have come among holy people, God's people. They can testify of a truth. God is in this place. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, I just confess, even as I preach this sermon here today, that I easily get caught into crowding you out. I come and I do the church thing and and I do my devotions in the morning, and, I, and, I do, and it just becomes this stuff that I do instead of knowing that I am communicating and, 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 uh, and with the God of the universe, the eternal God. God, forgive me. Forgive me for taking too lightly you <laughs> and the privilege I have of being in your presence. And God, I pray too that I would not take it lightly. I pray that we would not take it lightly, the privilege of your presence. But God, that we would press into being holy as you are holy. That we would press into loving you more. That we would press into showing your love to people more. That we would decrease and you would increase. Oh, God, and then I just pray this morning, if there's anyone listening that does not even know what it would mean to worship you, that this would be the day that that would start, that they would cry out to you, God, I, 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 I don't deserve you. I recognize who you are. You are a holy God, and I am a sinful person. I'm full of sin. But I recognize that Jesus because of his death on the cross for me, coming and living perfect and dying perfectly and rising again as we celebrated last weekend. Uh, God, I know that I can have life in him. And so I give myself to him today. And I say, now here I am. Send me, Lord. Scripture says that if we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that you, Jesus, are who you say you are, we will be saved, period, end of story. Oh God, Holy Spirit, uh, open eyes today for that, that lives would be forever changed as ours have been because of Jesus. We worship you. We love you. We will live for you and your glory. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand.